This is Lilac Wine, the podcast, a historical novel in progress. If you have not yet listened to the previous chapters, please do so. We are releasing this chapter by chapter one week at a time. And I don't want you to miss anything. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate, torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. And now, Lilac wine. Chapter 7 Moths fluttered around the kerosene lantern that sat on the table of Abelia's back porch. As the disc on the talking machine finished playing, Abelia removed her reading glasses and set down her glass of wine next to yesterday's edition of the Telegraph Herald. A headline announced that the House of Representatives passed a food bill with an amendment tacked on by the in Congress that would forbid nationwide alcohol production and consumption for the duration of the war, effectively making all of the United States bone dry. The Senate was set to vote on the measure soon. Not that it mattered to Abelia. The entire state of Iowa had been officially dry now for over a year, and she paid little attention to that. Every night she read the Telegraph Herald. Usually she received the paper in the afternoon mail, but since Owen's been out of commission, her delivery of the paper had been rather sporadic. Owen was very good at stopping first at the docks by the river to go through the town's first shipment, which arrived around noon. A stack of the Telegraph Herald always sat on top, and Owen would pick one up for a bilia before making his rounds. Therefore, she would always receive the paper on the same day that it was published, even though Dubuque was some 90 minutes downstream. And that was her summer ritual. The porch, wine, music, and the day's paper. Abelia lifted the tone arm from the disc and slid the brake, stopping the turntable in its rotation. Her talking machine was a Harvard model purchased from the Sears catalog in 1906 for... $15.90. It had a large external horn and a nice oak cabinet that was now scratched and faded. The player was well-worn but still produced good sound, good enough anyway for quiet summer evenings on the porch. She thought about buying one of the newer models that no longer had the external horn, but most of those were heavier and harder to move. The Victrola, for example, was contained in a large wooden cabinet, it sounded better, she was told, but she rather liked her old model and that it could be moved to the outdoors rather easily. It sounded good outside, and even Rose commented that she sometimes liked to fall asleep to the sounds of Abelia's machine on a summer's night. Except when she played ragtime music, that is. So once the sun went down, Abelia refrained from ragtime and played some of the music that Rose said she enjoyed. Although Enrico Caruso was Rose's favorite, 
Abelia usually capped the evening with Ave Maria by the famous castrato Alessandro Moreschi. first heard that recording more than a decade ago, she made it a point to inquire about it the following morning. Who was that beautiful young woman singing last night? she asked. Abelia had to then clarify that the voice was not that of a woman, but a man. Rose was confused, and Abelia then explained to her in the most delicate terms what a castrato was. Rose blushed and said she never wanted to hear the song again, that it was unnatural. However, that soft, delicate voice had such an effect on Rose. She was back in Abelia's yard in less than a week, apologizing for making the suggestion that Abelia could not play certain music in her own yard. So, she told Abelia that if she wanted to play that unnatural recording, it was up to her. She would not interfere nor object. The next time she played the recording, Abelia could faintly hear another voice floating down from the dogwood tree, intermingling with the famed castrato. And she has been playing it ever since. She had a box of records on the table and shuffled through them to find another one. She had been buying records since getting the Harvard and had acquired quite a collection over the last decade. Her love of music came from her mother, Colleen Brody. Her fondest memories were of her mother singing to her in bed or humming a tune in the garden. Near the back of the box, she stumbled upon one of her favorite discs, She is Far From the Land, recorded by Irish tenor John McCormack in 1911 on the Victor label. This was an old Irish tune that her mother sang to her when she was a child. Lifting it from the box, Abelia delicately placed the record on the turntable. After giving the arm a couple of cranks, she placed the needle onto the record and released the brake. Instantly, the melodic sound filled the porch. Abelia picked up her wine and turned down the lantern. Leaning against the porch post, she looked out over her garden, the light in the western sky fading into the darkness. The first of the lightning bugs were out, glowing softly around the evening primrose. From their gifts and 
Colleen Brody came to America in 1851 like so many Irish before her, fleeing the ruinous potato blight. Barely 17 years of age and alone, she first worked various jobs in Manhattan's East Side and then found a job in Newport, Rhode Island as a typical Molly at one of the lavish summer cottages of the East Coast elites. All female servants were called Mollies. It was just easier that way. Plus, with the high rate of turnover, this made it then unnecessary for the people of the house to have to learn the names of those whose station in life was to serve. Colleen washed laundry, she cooked, and occasionally nannied the children. But it was her talent in the garden that drew her to the lady of the house. Soon she found herself making flower arrangements and planting gardens. She worked very carefully on the table centerpieces for the several parties that occurred during the summer months, drawing the envy of the guests who came to the mansion for the balls and galas. She became very close to the lady of the house, and consequently, she also caught the eye of the master. At first, she resisted his advances, but soon found herself secretly meeting him in various places throughout the mansion. It became consensual and passionate. The servants knew there wasn't much that went on in a household that escaped discovery by those who worked behind the scenes. affair went on for several months, but it was Colleen's growing belly that drew suspicion from the people living in the house. Whispers were shouts in Newport, and the lady of the house had her sacked as soon as she suspected that Colleen was the object of her husband's affection. The gentleman, however, was not so cold-hearted, as Colleen had touched his heart in a way no woman had before. He gave her money and set her up with the means to buy a house. Colleen moved to Ohio to the over-the-Rhine neighborhood of Cincinnati. There, this young Irish girl mingled with the predominantly German population of the neighborhood. Monthly checks from out east allowed Colleen and Abelia the luxury of living in a modest house, in a modest neighborhood.
Colleen raised Abelia by herself, singing to her at night, filling her head with stories of the Irish Isle, of fairies and peasant heroes, a land of green that would one day be free. Abelia often asked about her father, but Colleen put a finger to her mouth and told her not to ask such questions. Time would reveal everything, she said. All that Abelia knew growing up was that her father was a wealthy industrialist and, due to her mother's reticence in discussing the matter, someone who wanted nothing to do with her. In fact, it became clear that secrecy was the only thing that kept the checks arriving in the mail. In due time, dear, in due time was how Colleen responded to Abelia's questioning. Abelia often thought about her father and imagined what he was like. She scanned the papers and magazines for information about wealthy American industrialists. Whenever she stumbled across a picture, she held it up to her face and looked in the mirror, trying desperately to notice any resemblance and clue as to her pedigree. She imagined herself an aster, or a cook, or a fisk. She dreamed of balls and jewelry and dancing. Colleen passed away before anything could be revealed. Indeed, had Colleen lived to an old age, Abelia was not sure she would have ever gotten an answer to her questions. Colleen kept promises, and this promise would have been kept to the grave regardless. The questions that Abelia asked to the finance house that administered the trust set up in her name were also left unanswered. The message was clear. This is not something that was meant to be known. Abelia, 17 years old, was now completely alone, without family, and with a father who was and always would be unknown. Oh, my God. 
the end of the record was reached, and it was several minutes before Abelia even realized that the music had stopped, replaced by the static of the needle trying to find a groove. She turned and set the brake lever, stopping the rotation of the turntable. When her mother died, Abelia was the same age her mother was when she first came to America, alone and without family. She stayed in over the Rhine for a while after her death, tending to the house and the garden. But she felt the need for a change, perhaps feeling the same tug that pulled her mother from Ireland a couple of decades earlier. She had no idea where to go. She considered New York. Chicago, San Francisco. In the end, she settled on Lily Springs because it was small and she liked the name. It was getting late and Abelia wanted to get a good night's sleep as the next day had the potential for being busy. Tomorrow was the day Archbishop's young cousin was coming to town not too many people visited Lily Springs, and whenever an extended visitor was a possibility, people wanted to roll out the red carpet and welcome. Ellie even had suggested a banner. Ellie always suggested a banner. As a lifelong resident of Lily Springs, Ellie worried that the town was dying, that people who leave never come back. So she felt that rewarding people for coming into town was more than the prudent thing to do. Ellie organized greetings, for example, every time Anthony came back from one of his world trips. Until, that is, the unthinkable happened. Anthony didn't come back. There'll be no banners, responded Art, embarrassed by the prospect. Abelia had been at the pharmacy earlier in the afternoon buying some tea and sugar. We don't want to scare him away. I need him to work Owen's route. Besides, he added, glancing at Abelia, he's going to help Abby with her garden. Abelia smiled and paid for her items, not having the heart to tell Art that she had already replanted the garden, nursed the plants that were salvageable, and reseeded the lawn. She heard a sound from Rose's house and realized that she needed to play Ave Maria once again, as Rose was most likely sitting in a chair near her bedroom window. Rose often made overly obvious noises to alert Abelia as to her presence. She may not be able to see well into Abelia's backyard. She still wanted to make her presence known. As Abelia placed the record on the turntable, she realized something. She had one glass of blackberry wine too many. Tomorrow was going to begin with a hangover.
So that was chapter seven of Lilac Wine, my novel in progress. I am Bruce Janu. Thanks for joining me here for this behind the episode that we do on every chapter here. I talk a little bit about writing the chapter and the inspirations and so forth. And I, I sat down just now to record this and I had poured myself a glass of Guinness. Nothing goes better with podcasts than Guinness, in my opinion. And it's quite fitting that the highlight of the episode was John McCormick and Abelia listening to that album. He's an Irish tenor that was pretty famous here in the States. This chapter was all about the music, really. It was a glimpse in a typical evening for Abelia. And I did this purposefully coming off the last chapter with Robert doing a typical evening in the Gem Theater to watch Charlie Chaplin in Chicago, and then all hell breaks loose. All hell does not break loose here in Abelia's backyard. She's just drinking wine and listening to some music. That is her preferred state of things. And so she does it every night, goes through lots and lots of wine. The John McCormick song, She Is Far From The Land, was recorded in 1911. And what you heard in the episode was an actual recording of it. I collect 78 RPM record albums. I actually run a radio station called Vinyl Voyage Radio, where I play everything on vinyl. Uh, And I have a lot of really, really old vinyl as well. We usually don't play that on the station. If interested, by the way, you could go to vinylvoyageradio.com. Now, just to be clear, though, those old 78s, like the one we just listened to, uh, they're not made out of vinyl. Vinyl would not become a thing until after World War II. These albums are made out of shellac, and they're very brittle. They're very delicate. And so uh, you got to be very careful with them. And so that John McCormick album, that was on shellac. And I've got, uh, I've got a lot of them. Uh, it requires a different needle. So I have to switch out needles on my turntable. And you can't clean them with any chemicals. It has to just be distilled water because the chemicals, they, uh, they eat away at the shellac. And they will destroy, destroy the album. So if you've got old 78s, don't use record cleaner. Use just distilled water there i i wanted to uh play something for real that abelia would have listened to and there's nothing better than john mccormick who was born in ireland he honed his craft in italy and then came to america and um toured and everything else he eventually made his way back to ireland and he died there in 1945 he was in his late 20s in 1911 when he recorded that song. The song itself was actually a poem written by Thomas Moore, who was born in uh, 1779, and he died mid-19th century. And it is a poem about a, um, a patriot, an Irish patriot, who who dies and his, his uh, 
lover that he leaves behind longs for him. And it was turned into a song, and it would have been a song that most Irish people knew at the time Abelia was born. And so I wanted something that Abelia could latch onto as a memory, a memory of her mother, Colleen. And so we get a little bit more in this chapter about Abelia. Abelia is a very mysterious person. She doesn't know too much about, you know, uh, her pedigree. Obviously, she doesn't know her who her dad is, just knows that he's, he's a famous American industrialist. I don't know who that person is. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I could maybe figure out, I could probably attach a name to her, but I didn't want that because I want to be, you know, I want to feel that kind of mystery too and that kind of loneliness that Abelia feels because she doesn't know. So she's got her memory, she's got her wine, and she's got her music. Music was going to be a big part of this. In the chapter, while I'm reading it or while somebody reads it, I've got the lyrics to She Is Far From The Land there. Uh, But when I recorded this podcast, instead of me reading the lyrics, I decided after reading the lyrics, I thought it would just be kind of cool to hear John McCormick sing. And so that is what you heard. It's it's my own record album that I recorded. I tried to clean it up a little bit. Um, that's the thing about those really old recordings. Even back then, they would have kind of a tinny sound to them. They weren't obviously uh, high tech or high fidelity. But that is what Abelio would have been listening to that night. And there's going to be more music as we make our way through this novel. Abelia collects a lot of records. She uh, even considers buying a new uh, talking machine, as they were called. She has a Howard now, and I'll post on Instagram. Just follow me on Instagram, and that's Lilac Wine Pod at Instagram. I'll be posting pictures of the ad from the Sears catalog that Abelia would have bought her model from in um, in the early 1900s. But music's going to play a role when Abelia and Robert meet. They're going to actually listen. This is down the line a bit, but listen to the first ever jazz album that was ever, of course, recorded. And uh, the other uh, song there... And I just, I just knew I had to incorporate it because it's such a cool story. And um, that is a song, Ave Maria, by Alessandro Moreschi. Alessandro Moreschi was an Italian guy who was a castrati. He is the only known uh, person, a castrati, to have recorded music. And that piece, I don't own that one. I found it online. Uh, he recorded in 1904. He was 46 years old at that time. And castrati's were at one time a big thing, especially boys who had you know, beautiful voices. They would be encouraged to undergo a procedure, an operation to you know, have their testicles removed to be castrated so that they could keep that voice and so you yeah, got grown men. Alessandro Moreschi was 46 years old when he recorded 
Ave Maria. This was particularly big in the classical era, in the age of Mozart and the Baroque period before that. In fact, there's this great story. The uh, famous composer Hayden, he started off as a choir boy, and at the age of eight, he reportedly had an angelic voice, high soprano. And uh, this was in Vienna. And the choir director went to his parents and said, you know, your son's got this great voice. You know, it needs to be preserved. So we would like to keep the voice. And he wasn't very clear on what they were going to do to their son. So according to one story, and this has been disputed, but it's a great story. His parents consented to Hayden becoming a castrati. And so Hayden left and was supposed to get that procedure done when somebody fully explained to his parents what that meant and they went nuts and they stopped the procedure. And he continued to sing in uh, the boys' choir, but by the age of 17, his voice had changed too much and he was kicked out. So there you go. Castrati's were a really big thing. Alessandro... Moreshi died in 1922. So I just wanted to include him in it and, and you know, develop a little bit of the relationship between Abelia and, of course, Rose. They have kind of this love-hate relationship. Uh, Rose, very nosy, you know, often sits and tries to see what Abelia is doing in her backyard, but Abelia built a wall gruel wall, but uh, there's a lot of envy that Rose has for Abelia because Abelia is kind of carefree. You know, Abelia really doesn't care too much about what people think about her because that that's not the life that she, that she lived, you know, uh, caring so much about what people uh, think. There's also a shout out in this. I, I wanted Abelia to grow up in a place, and that place was the Over the Rhine neighborhood in Cincinnati. In one of the episodes that we did, uh, the preview episodes before I started reading the novel, I talked about inspirations. And one of my biggest inspirations for this project, for writing, was the band Over the Rhine. They had a uh, song called In Flanders Fields, and that song uh, sparked everything about this process. And they are my favorite band, their husband and wife duo, Linford Detweiler and Karen Burquist, that live in Ohio, and they started in the Over the Rhine neighborhood, and they named their band after that. So I wanted to put Abelia in that neighborhood, we're going to do a chapter coming down the line where Abelia is going to be remembering a little bit about growing up there and some of the things that she learned from her eccentric neighbors in that neighborhood. So I needed to put Over the Rhine back in this as well and make it a part of the story. So if you have any questions or comments about the chapter, about the novel, please let me know. Go to our website at lilacwinenovel.com. You can find our message board and you could go to it. You could, you could post a question and I'll, I'll read it on the podcast. I'll try and answer it. 
Um, let me know what you think. Seriously, you know, I've got pretty thick skin. Constructive criticism is always appreciated. And if you get a chance, if you are liking this, I would greatly appreciate some um, some love, some some reviews. <laughs> um, you know, go to iTunes, and uh, you know, the more reviews I get, the more uh, likely the probability rises that I can be featured in the new and notable or noteworthy or whatever Apple Apple calls it because uh, it's really hard to you know break out there and get people listening. So if you could, that would be great. So next week, we are going into Robert's dreams and we're going to have our very first uh, plunge into the horrors of World War one. So until then, I am Bruce Janu. Thanks for listening. See you next week. This podcast is produced by Bell Book and Camera Productions. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. If you are liking Lilac Wine, the podcast, please take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes. That will help us gain more listeners. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. We work together on another podcast at the school where we both work. That podcast is We Are EG and tells the stories of students and staff at Elk Grove High School, but demonstrates that no matter where you are, we all have something in common. Check that podcast out at weareg.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com. Please visit Lilac Wine Novel to join the discussion. Ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening. <laughs>